Hey guys, I'm Ashers. And I'm Pat O. And every Wednesday we talk weird. It's a weekly podcast bringing you the latest in cryptozoology, ufology, conspiracies, the occult, and all the latest in Fortean news. Everything from the ooky to the spooky. It's like coast to coast AM for people who fuck. Search for On Wednesdays We Talk Weird anywhere you get podcasts. See you guys next Wednesday. Hey, I'm Pat. And I'm Vince. And welcome back to episode five of Wired, where we're going to dissect season five of The Wire, the final season of Wired. I was actually a fan of the, I like season five a lot. Um, that's like season two, five is when they kind of get shit on a lot. Season five is probably my least favorite. I didn't mind season two. Overall, I, I would say it was probably my least favorite as well. I still liked it an awful lot, but of the other ones before, yeah, season five was my least favorite. And which is kind of crazy to consider because David Simon was a Baltimore reporter for a while. So this is he's definitely writing from a place of like experience, right? You know? And they they went into the season knowing that it was the final season. It's not like it. it, it because they wanted to cancel month. after four, I think, and then he talked him into letting them finish the story. Four was so huge, they gave him another season, and uh, he, he's in interviews he said that if he had to do season six, he had, honestly had no idea what he would have done. And I think it does end and wrap up pretty well, too. I don't think it, there, another season was needed. They could have made it where they could have done it, but I, 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 like, I like it. I well, like it. on paper, it makes a lot of sense. It makes sense that Simon's swan song would have been... Uh, his love. His, yeah, uh, journalism and the way that the, the press kind of... Uh, affects the city so that all makes sense although the execution i feel at least leaves a little bit to be desired a lot of these guys i mean a lot of these uh writers that are the cool kids at the table kind of thing you know and i think he wrote it because he respects the journalism likes it so much that of course he wrote his aspect to be a lot more like cooler than it was you know right right um and then they've got the uh so so the journalism team which isn't much it's just mostly uh what's his name scott uh scott is a up, he, he, he's not very talented, but he's probably a very average writer. And he starts to go uh, the route of making up stories a little bit to kind of get ahead. This, the Baltimore, it's the Baltimore Sun, and they're, they're facing buyouts. They're broke at this point, and they're just, their top guys are getting their contracts bought out, and they're being moved on. So they're facing cut after cut after cut, and they're not able to do real news anymore. Once again, like predating the collapse of uh, print media by probably 10 years or so. Really ahead of its time. Yeah. yeah. So... Uh, yeah, that, that's the main storyline is that uh, there's there, he's trying to save his career and he comes up with the serial killer. There's a serial killer that's, that's we'll get into the origin of the serial but there's a serial killer around Baltimore killing the homeless people. And this guy, Scott, he's been trying, he, he thinks his number's up. He's not very talented. He's not very, he's expendable, basically. Right. So he tries to find a way to make himself expendable. He takes all their interviews, all their papers, and they just don't want him. He's just not good enough. So he goes running with this homeless killer story, which we find out ends up being complete bullshit. And he ends up taking his own direction with him. McNulty takes the homeless killer one way, and he takes the other way. But we'll go to the origin of the... We'll get back to him, but we'll go to the origin of the killer. So basically, after the bodies are unearthed from, from Marlowe's uh, tombs in the vacants, it's the biggest story in the world for a long time. By the time season five starts out, the excitement and the attention is kind of going away. And they're not any closer to solving these things, so they don't put any more interest in it anymore. Sure. Which 25 to 25, 30 bodies, something like that, doesn't really. McNulty says, if 25 bodies doesn't rate, what the fuck does? Right. And, you know, so it's a big deal. You know, all these people are just turning up dead, 
25 bodies of drug dealers and gang associates. And, exactly. Yeah. If they were solid citizens, it would have been you know, right. much bigger. But these, these are just, you know, air quotes to assholes, you know, or right. whatever. But, yeah, so McGilty is getting, the police department is getting cuts. They're still trying to deal with the education budget we found out about season four. So every spare dime the city has goes into taking care of these educational budgets. All the promises made to the police department about raises and doing police work the right way, they're going, they're going on by the wayside right now. He's got to focus his money on getting the schools back up. This picks, pisses McNulty off. McNulty came back in, into detective, into the unit, under a promise that this case would be handled the right way, and he's been lied to. He feels he's been wrong, but he has. So he decides to take it upon himself to get some attention to it. What sensationalizes the story more than a serial killer? You know, it's sexy, it's interesting, it's fun to read about. And does he go back to the judge from the first season? Phelan does show up in this season, okay. but um, he doesn't go. He, I think he tries to go to it, but Phelan, no, that's season four, okay. when Phelan's still in somebody's pocket and can't help him anymore. Okay. So he takes it upon himself to create this killer of homeless people. At first, nobody cares because they're homeless people. Why, you know, it's not, it's not sensational enough. But then he talks to Freeman about it. Bunk is completely against this. When McNulty decides to do this, he's on the end of a bender. He's, he's the drunkest he's ever been. He's at his absolute worst with his alcoholism and his just complete craziness. So him and Bunk get called about a body being found in a house. They discover it, that it wasn't a murder or anything, that it was, it was just an OD or just a random man just dying natural causes. McNulty, drunk as hell, takes it, takes it upon himself because he had found out earlier that if you strangle a corpse right after it dies, it still looks like it could have been the cause of death. The time will match up because there's a window that he fit in. So McNulty starts staging a crime scene where it would look like this homeless man was strangled and murdered. Bunk wants absolutely nothing to do with this. He's McNulty's moral compass from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. Wants nothing to do with this, thinks McNulty's off his rocker. So McNulty stages this crime scene and says it was a homicide. Nobody cares at first, because it's a homeless person. And then they do another one, nobody cares. And then Bunk finally has had enough and he tells Fremont, this is what McNulty's doing, like talk him out of it, I need some help. Fremont loves the idea. <laughs> he falls in love with what McNulty's done. He's like, no, we gotta make this sexy, we gotta make this like sensationalized. So he comes up with the idea of making them look like sex attack victims before they were murdered. But there's biting and uh, there's a little bit of, not full on like corpse rape, but there's a lot of biting and like a lot of sexual overtones, thinking that would get some newspaper's attention. And it does. Right. Because no one likes the idea of bums being chewed on. No one likes the idea of being chewed on, but especially bums. Right. Because that's, that's a whole other level of salaciousness that uh, the press can't help but eat up and it. it gets a lot of attention to uh, the situation there. Um, which, I mean... Oh, if I read that story in, in the real world, I would follow, I'd follow every second of it. Yeah. Like, it is very interesting. It's a little out there from, like, a believability standpoint, I guess, but they do do it very well. It is kind of jump the sharky. Like that, and that's, I think, where people's complaints about the season stem from is the idea that they're going to that a cop is going to make up. You know, I, I think that if you were to say to somebody, do you think that the police sometimes mis massage crime scenes or, or do whatever, like, you know, we have evidence of that happening. You know? Yeah, there's a history and a believability to but it. But the idea to manufacture a serial killer and then get the press involved so that, uh, you know, it draws more attention and it could possibly create more funding, 
um, is is kind of like some next level thinking that you can only really attribute to Lester Freeman. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> gonna... I was going to say when you were starting talking, any other people in the show or in the world would have pulled out. I'd be like, no fucking way. But the way these characters were built up, I could see they, they're both think they're smarter, the smartest people in every room they walk in. Right. Guilty, especially Freeman, actually is the smartest. Is it, I was going to say that he is. This is. I mean, he's got the swagger where you know he's the smartest person in the room. Right. Yeah. And the the fact that he's it's ultimately for the greater good, which is absolutely they want to use. So what they want to do is they want to sensationalize the story and use the extra funding that would come into solving the crime and reroute it to the Marlo Sandfield case, which has been forgotten at this point. But what happens is the the press on their own take it. This reporter Scott, yeah, takes it, runs with it, and blows it up even bigger because he's now saying that he's having conversations or he's got insight. he got a phone call from it. It's like he has a relationship with this killer now, where the guy calls him and uses like the thick Baltimore accent. It's kind of scary, and he makes it up. Just, I mean, McGilty and Fremont hear about this like. What's this guy do? We didn't, we didn't call anybody. But they appreciate the help because it does further their cause along. So it goes away for now. They're like, well, this guy's full of shit, but like, we'll let this go for now. Right. As it goes on, people start to take notice of this. They, the crimes start happening more frequently to the point where they have a guy on the side who wants to be more of a realtor than a cop. And they tell the guy, you find any homeless people, you call us first and we'll come here. I'll fill out your paperwork. You just let us know. When the story is small, they're able to get to the body before anybody else and manipulate it to fit their story. As it gets bigger, because it does get bigger, when a call goes out about a dead homeless person, the entire squad shows up now, because they can't make bodies, they can't make murders anymore. Right. So Lester gets the idea of not making bodies, but just doing it through text messaging, because they find out that Marlowe's people have stopped using cell phones in a normal way, and now they're using texting to get their meetings across. So they need to be able to justify the wire to get text images from they're using like they're sending S, like just SMS pictures yeah. with like clocks on them. So they they use all the money for that to get the, the operation going. Everything actually goes pretty well for a while. Nobody, the, the cops all believe it's bullshit. Especially uh, Lan, um, what was his name? The sergeant Lan, um, Landsman. Okay. Landsman. He's like, yeah. No matter what you do, though, they're not going to give you more and more money. And then it gets too big. It gets too much attention where they have to just divert it. At first, it's like, okay, we'll give you an extra couple of detectives to solve this. And then it becomes, all right, we're going to give you everything you need. So uh, people find out what McNulty's doing, and he ends up becoming a boss in a sense where people will be like, let me use your your crime to help me solve my real murders. You know, they start taking advantage of it. People find out and that he's doing it for other people, and they start taking advantage of him too. One guy was like, oh, I found there was a, there was a dead body that attaches one of my cases in some area where there was a golf resort the guy wanted to go to. And he tell, McNulty's like, no, he's like, that's not going to fit into the crime at all. And the guy's like, listen, you're doing this for everybody else. He starts getting taken advantage of and realizes, all right, it's gone too far. I have to reel this in a bit yeah. because it's getting too big. Kima is back in the, in the group, and she is none the wiser. She's too honest. They don't want to bring her in yet. But she's got a triple homicide to deal with herself that's not getting work because they're diverting her to this fake serial killer bullshit. And McNulty cannot have that. He, he cares about Greg's. Knows he's getting enough cop, and he cares about real crimes being solved. So he tells her, he's like, hey, he's like, just keep putting your name on my stuff, work your triple, don't worry about us, we don't need the help. So she still keeps working her own way, and that's kind of what smiles everybody else asking him, too. And as it goes on, McGilty actually calls the cop, or calls the, calls the uh, reporter, scares the living shit out of him using that voice. As he, as he hangs up, the reporter goes, that, that was really him, and he almost slips up a little bit. He's like, that, that, no, that was him. Like, is that really him? Like, like, it wasn't the first time? which was pretty good. 
And, uh, as, and then, you know, he keeps going, and they he takes a, a handicapped guy he finds and brings him to a homeless shelter in a different state and takes pictures of this guy saying, like, you're not going to find the bodies anymore. This is the new guy I've killed, and it's in the text image. Right. And uh, then there's, like, a copycat killer that gets born from this, too. There's another homeless guy they met that starts doing it. So basically, in essence, he's created a real kind of killer in the background of his bullshit. It's interesting that the season that is going to deal with the press and the media, um, which is David Simon's background, he's going to present them in a very negative light. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. there's a decent amount of self-loathing there. You think that if he's going to do something about the press, maybe he's going to he's going to play the all the president's men angle, where like <laughs> these are the heroes hardworking, the yeah, hardworking beat reporters that just which collect, he does dip into it. He does dip into it a bit. Yeah, that, that just collect names and dates, like you know. It, it, Journalism is not sexy work. It's not TMZ. It kind of is its own beast, and I think the public has, has lost a, a palate for that. Especially, dude. Once again, why are being ahead of its time? Yeah, no I mean, kidding. How much shit today is like you, you can't trust the news fucking at all. You have to read multiple different sources just to kind of, you know, come to some kind of conclusion yourself. And there's uh, this line. I don't know if you ever seen Oz, but there's this line in Oz, which is amazing. Another show well well ahead of its time, but there's this line is like. You watch three different channels, read three different newspapers, and then you get a little bit of the truth. Right. Like, if media goes, like, nowadays, that was just something I thought of while you were saying that. Yeah, maybe this is Simon kind of issuing a warning that, like, these reporters ultimately are people trying to keep jobs. And what sells newspapers and what produces revenue Sensationalism. is is their salesmen. Yep. And, and they got to sell the truth in such a way that it, it keeps their job intact. There's this editor that Scott's boss is, as an editor there, who sees through Scott's bullshit the entire time. Yeah. He, knows, he always he just sees right through the whole thing. Yeah. To the point where he argues with management constantly, like, this guy, he starts out, Scott starts out like all things start, starts out small. He makes up a story about opening day at uh, Camden Yards. Is that Camden Yards in Baltimore? Mm-hmm. About this, per, it's too perfect of a story about a little kid in a wheelchair who ditched school to watch the Orioles on an opening day. And he didn't have a picture of the kid. He had, like, a little street nickname because he didn't want to get caught skipping school. I think the street nickname was EJ or something like that. Something that only, like, an asshole reporter like that would have made up. But the story was too good. It's one of those, like, heartbreaking stories that you read that are just, like, too good where you think there's no way this really happened. Right. And there's no picture of the kid, which they didn't want to print. So the editors want to print it. They've got no picture of this kid. What are we going to do? We're going to look like idiots here. He made it up out of nowhere. Like, it was clear. And his justification was, what black kid in Baltimore cares about baseball he's like football maybe or basketball he's like but no they don't care enough so he just he was skeptical from the beginning but the higher ups of the newspaper are loving the attention and the money they're getting talking about putting this guy up for a pulitzer <laughs> and everything off these bullshit stories right and the old guard who i guess maybe it's it's it is old guard versus new there's definitely a bit of that yeah and maybe that's david simon is aligning himself with the old guard the editor that sees through the bullshit the editor looks like a hero throughout the whole time i think that's exactly what he aligns yeah yeah so that makes sense that david simon's uh insert into the uh, narrative is with this editor and not necessarily the reporter. But he definitely saw our current bullshit coming. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but of course with The Wire, like, we bring in new stuff, but also we maintain relationships with the past characters. So right now, Marlo is in the co-op of Prop Joe. He finally joined up. He's into it. He doesn't like it, but he's into it. He likes the dope connection. He likes that being hassled and being protected. But Marlo's a guy, he can't sit second fiddle to anybody, and Prop Joe is clearly the guy in charge. He controls the drug connect. He's the top dog. Marlo wants that crown, and he wants it for himself and with nobody else. So he has Prop Joe, kind of schools him, brings him along, shows him how to dodge the cops, how to launder his money, introduces him to Maury Levy as his lawyer, and just like kind of shows him the ropes. He'll teach him how to run. And 
not knowing that he's actually training his replacement. Well, let's do let's do this character. Let's do season five character by character. So right. let's let's kind of go through uh, Marlowe's storyline. Um, his his like uh, the punctuation mark on his story is one of those things that even though I've, I've, I watched The Wire many years ago, I always remember. I always remember Marlowe going to that party with Levy. And it's the same party that Stringer Bell was at at one point. Stringer Bell handled himself relatively well and conducted himself very professionally. Marlowe goes and is completely Fish out, of out, out of place. This, you know, this is what you're supposed to do. You got a lot of money. You got a big piece of the game. You know, you spread the money so, around. At this point, Marlowe's made a deal that we can't bust you, but if we catch you in the game again, we're going to bust your ass. So Marlowe's trying to potentially go legit, go legit like which, Stringer which Stringer always wanted to. So Marlowe goes to this party with Levy, and he does what I usually do when I go to parties with that people. I say, fuck these people. Yeah. And he walks out of the party. He goes to the nearest fucking street corner. Find some guys slinging. Because there's one guy. He's like, you know who I am? The guy's like, should I? And he just jacks it. And the guy goes to shoot him. Marlo jacks him in the face, takes the gun, and sends him off running. Right. Showing that he's going to go right back to his Th- old ways. That's what he does. Fuck this. I'm not about going legit. I have to. I'm about claiming street corners one by one. He's, you know, he's what happened. Like, soldiers like Bodie don't necessarily always make it to the top. But when they do, they become people like Marlo. Yeah. Marlo is very much a soldier. Avon kind of stayed out of the running gun shit. Marlo was forced to stay out of it. He would always like to get his hands dirty. When um, Omar, so we'll get to the Omar in a bit, but Omar gets pissed at Marlo and starts calling him a cocksucker in the streets and shit. And everyone's protecting Marlo from him because they know Marlo will go after him to fight him one-on-one, which is a fight that Marlo's probably not going to win. Right. But Marlo is so, so hard and so concerned about his reputation. He's like, what is it? My name is my name. That's what he keeps saying. He's like, what, what good is the crown of motherfuckers always going to take your shit? So that's how we leave Marlo at the end of the season five, is that he's alive and he's he's back to the streets and, and fuck going legit. It, he doesn't have it in him. He's, he's kind of starting from the bottom again because most, most of his guys at this point have been taken in, but he hasn't. Right. So he's going to kind of start over a little bit, but if anybody could do it, it's him. He's singular-minded. You brought up Omar. Let's rip the Band-Aid off right now. Oh, all right, Omar. <laughs> so at the end of season four, Omar rips off this, the main stash, Prop Joe's main stash. He finds out where it is, and they steal it. They sell it back to him, and hilarious, they sell it back to him for way more money. And that pissed Marlo off. So Marlo's going after, but then Omar runs off into the sunset with his boyfriend. Where do they go, to like South America or something like that, or the Caribbean or something like that? And Omar wants, he won't let this go. He, this guy ripped him off, he will not let this go. So they go to Omar's confidant and friend, Butchie, the blind bartender that Omar uses as his bank, his advisor, and they torture and kill him. And they make sure that it gets back to Omar. How bad have they tortured and killed him? So Omar hears this. He comes back running. Right. He's on the warpath as soon as he comes back. So he's stalking people. He's stalking the top three for a while. He finds out where Monk lives. He's casing the guy's house until he decides he's going to finally go in. He goes in there. There's a shootout. He's got his two guys with him, two, Butchie's two guys. He's got his muscle with him. They get dropped right away. Mar- Omar gets cornered in the shootout in the, in the, in the condo and jumps out the window. As, as Barlow said, that's some Spider-Man shit right there. <laughs> they look out the window. It was like, By the way, this is like six stories up, way too high to survive this fall. Omar jumps out the window, and when they look out, he's completely gone. You find out that he went like to a, cl- uh, a janitor area around the corner. His leg is broken. He's fucked at this point. Right. So now he's on the, but he's not going to stop. He's on the warpath with his broken leg, madder than ever. So he's going after one guy. He finds one of Marlo's muscle fruit. He's talking, or it was uh, the one that shot Greg in the first season, an S, Servino. 
So he talks to him a little bit, tries to find out about Monk. He gets the information he wants, drops him dead. He goes to Slim Charles to try and find out more information. Looks like he's going to kill Slim Charles, but just Slim Charles ends up telling him the truth. So he just pistol whips him and leaves him alive. I love Slim Charles. I was glad he didn't die. Yeah. I'll tell, I'll tell you why my favorite part of it was at the end, because it comes in. He was the pimp bartender guy, right? Yes. And uh, yeah. he's talking about in, uh, in the Deuce? In the Deuce? Or? No, no. Keep going. Well, Slim, Charles is, uh, Slim Charles was the guy. He... Uh, Becomes like the head of the Barksdale. Yeah, real talk about the uh, cornrows. He becomes like the Barksdale face after Avon's already gone. Okay. And um, so, as Omar's on this warpath, he doesn't. He does end up. He does end up eventually killing Monk. He gets Monk. He's going after Chris, Snoop, and Marlowe now, and he kind of like figuring out where they are. But they're in hiding. I think they go to a. They'll kind of like lock down in like a safe house while Omar's looking for him. And Omar starts to get kind of close. They put the head on him and they hide. Omar's trying to get close and he goes to the convenience store. To get Lucky Charms and fucking cigarettes. Lucky Charms and cigarettes. And you hear this pop and you just see his head fucking part of his brain explode on the window. When I first seen it, I did not believe that it even happened. Right. I said, no shit. And, when, and then he just dropped. He's dead. Omar's gone. And when you see the person with the gun, it's a little kid. You, you'll recognize him as Kennard from season four. He's like, he's not big in season four. No. He's a little shit. But earlier in, in a couple, like maybe earlier in the episode, or maybe the episode before, you see Omar walking down an alley, and you see Kennard and a bunch of other kids there pouring gasoline on a cat or something. This kid's sick. And Omar sees him and kind of ignores him. You would never would have suspected a kid would go after him. But the kid kind of gives him a look. But when you rewatch it, you realize what he's thinking about doing, and he gets him. Yeah, I mean, so let's talk about Omar Little being killed very unceremoniously by just some kid that got the drop on him because he wasn't paying attention. And I... You know, as anticlimactic is that, as that is for the character's arc. It's real, man. It's I guess, real. yeah. I mean, there's a certain element of realism to that because, you know, you can live, you could, you could be Robin Hood of the ghetto and do all this stuff and be this larger-than-life character, but when you have that many enemies, all it takes is for you to be at the wrong place at the wrong time and have your back turned on the wrong person. Underestimate even one person, right. even a child like him. So Who's very little, by the way. Th- that his death, I guess, as much as I don't think it makes good cinema wasn't, I, you know, it was kind of handled maybe, I mean, it makes sense. I, I, I can't bemoan it that much. I would have liked to see something way more. Like, I would like to see him survive. I wanted to I, been, I was sure he was going to survive. I would have been very okay with Omar surviving The Wire. I, I, I did not need to see his death. At the same time, kind of like with Tony Soprano's death, like well, did we even really see? Yeah, there's still debate about that, though. Well, I don't think I don't think. Okay. I agree with you. I yeah. think he's gone too. Yeah, but there is debate. I think David it. Chase has almost said as much. It, I don't know. I, I, I could pull up interviews, but um, my understanding was that he's dead. That's it. And Omar, it's like at least we got a corpse out of Omar. Right. Like I would have been okay with Omar living. I understand Omar dying, and even more so, I understand Omar dying in this fashion. But it is kind of anticlimactic. But uh, maybe yeah, I, it's just. I guess it's realistic in the sense that this guy's got his guard up 24-7. He lets it down for a split second. When he dies, right before he dies, you hear the bell of the bodega ringing because somebody else walked in. He kind of looks over, sees somebody, and like goes, all right, whatever, and looks ahead, and the next thing you hear is the pop. Right. So, like, he saw it, underestimated what had walked in, which I would, too. You see a look at that? I think this is going to shoot me. Right, but that's how dangerous the streets are. That's how dangerous the streets are. Even the kids, you know. So, so Bunk gets the call. Bunk and, Bunk and Omar had a tumultuous relationship. A lot of respect, a lot of like Bunk's like, I'm going to get you one day, motherfucker. <laughs> and Bunk's the one that gets called to the scene when Omar drops. And he's, well, I couldn't believe it. Like, they're like, Omar's pockets are already turned out and shit. And he, Bunk finds a list, his kill list. He's like, oh, I see you're back on the hunt. 
Because part of the reason Omar leaves is because Bunk tells him to get out of here, you know? Like, right. And Omar listens this time. And then they're like, what happened to the rest of his stuff? Like, I don't know, some kids came in, they took his shoddy, his handgun, and a couple of souvenirs. <laughs> Imagine having an Omar souvenir in that, like... Right. Been ama- it would have been amazing, but I was, I was pretty sad when that happened. Hey, man, guns are expensive. Like, if someone was dead there and they had a shotgun with them, like... Big fucking shotgun. That's like exactly. Yeah. That is, you know, an unregistered gun. You know, like, right. for that. So, uh, so that's Omar. Uh, another character that you brought up that I maintain is one of my favorite deaths from season five is Snoop. Snoop. Snoop was an amazing character because again, she was uh, definitely been through the experiences in real life, so she knew that world a little bit. She's tough as nails. Always just her and Chris have a good relationship. Chris is definitely scary and definitely hard. Snoop is like running gun, like let's shoot this guy now. Chris is more of a thinker. He doesn't necessarily want to kill people. And we'll, I'll get more into that in a minute when we talk about him and Michael. But Chris doesn't want to kill people. Right? He wants to give some people the benefit of the doubt. But when he's being done, he's being done. Snoop's like, let's just shoot this motherfucker and be done with it. So Michael at this point, just a little background. We'll get into this whole story. But at this point, Michael had been questioning the boss too much. Oh, you know, Marlo does not like being questioned. And Snoop's loyal. So they decide... So Chris, they're in jail. Somebody ratted. They think that they don't think it was Michael. None of them think it was Michael, but they're not willing to bet their future. It was like Chris says, "I don't see the boy doing it," and Marlo said, "I don't see me either doing it either." But we wanted to bet your life on it, and they decide they're not. So they put the hit on him. Snoop was not arrested. So she picks up Michael and says, "We got to go take care of some shit talker down the street. Don't bring a gun. I've got a fresh one for you." Michael had learned from Chris that always show up to a meeting an hour early, make sure they're not setting up on you, and always be ready. So Michael brings the gun anyway. As they're driving, Michael's like, pull over, I gotta piss, I gotta take a, I gotta take a piss. He finally talks to her, she pulls over, he whips out the gun and points it at her. Snoop knows she's done. She respects the shit out of Michael, though. She's like, you're a smart whatever. I always, you always were. And then Michael's like, what, what did I do? Like, what have I done? I've never betrayed you guys. And she's like, it's the way you carry yourself. Like, like you're not one of us. Like, like Michael was always still an outsider. As in as he got at the end, he was still an outsider and they just didn't trust him. Right. So he ends up, so he got the drop on her though, because he learned, he was very smart. Kills Snoop, which again, she was someone that I knew was gonna die, but died amazingly. Died and by her own hand, because she, they had kind of taught this kid the ropes. And she then created, he, they, created, they created their own killer, basically. He, yeah, he used those same methods against her. And then he, later on, he's kind of seen as the, the, the new Omar. Omar. Yeah, because you see him at the end. So let's talk about Michael though. We got Steve, let's talk about Michael. So by the end of season five, Michael is fully in the group. He's, he's like, the top, the top three guys in the group are Marlo, Chris, and Snoop. But then they've got Monk, and Michael is right around there. He's a pretty high-ranking member. They trust him, and they like him. So he's there at the shootout when Omar shows up at that condo at Monk's place. But as this goes on, they see more and more brutal shit. Like, like what I talked before, one guy called Marlo a cocksucker. I mistakenly said it was season four, but it was season five. That's the triple that uh, Greg's is working. Um, called the cocksucker and Marlo they wipe out his whole they wipe out the guy's whole family just for talking shit yeah. and Michael starts to question him he's like I don't see why a guy's gotta be dead just Marlo knows he's not a cocksucker why does the whole family gotta be dead just cause this guy talks too much shit so he said, that's part of the questioning with these with a group like Marlo's you gotta be unquestioningly loyal so they just never trusted him he was always a little smart for what he was doing and um, he starts to after so then yeah as he's going on they put the hit on him and he decides, okay, I got, I got to get my little brother out of town. He tell, he talks about bringing uh, Dookie. It's no longer safe for Dookie to be living with him. Dookie goes on the streets. We'll get to him in a minute. But he brings his uh, brother to his aunt in the suburbs with a shoebox full of money, saying she's gonna take care of him because Michael can't anymore. He's gonna be on the streets now, always on the run. 
So you think that might be the end of Michael. And then uh, the last episode, the guy who runs the, uh, the rim shop, who was Marlowe's bank, kind of one of his advisors, you see Michael show up and rob the place just like Omar with the same bravado. He had another like handsome young man with him. Not, not, not as not gay like Omar, but he had another handsome man yeah. with him that was like his backup. Talk just like Omar. And then he ended up with the ring. There's this ring that's going around the whole fifth season, and he ends up with it. Michael does. It passes from one cop to uh, it was it was the one big guy's ring, uh, who was running the bodega that was the uh, the front for the drug shop, and he just keeps passing around, and Michael ends up getting it. Well, after this week, if you want, uh, we could we could go into uh, Dookie and Bubbles, but I think that there's something that they try to do in the fifth season where they end storylines for certain characters, but they also make sure that the audience follows like you get the origins of the next batch and you see how like you know Omar, Omar, Omar's story is over but with Michael's story just beginning you see how and with him becoming the new Omar you realize that yeah Omar was someone that probably ran with the gangs at first but was too smart was like Michael. Yeah, wasn't, you know, was too smart to realize. You know, Michael had a good heart, just like Omar. At the end of the day, he was a ruthless killer, but Omar had a good heart. He had a code. Code. Right? That that he wasn't about to, he was too independent. He wasn't about to uh, subvert his code because some person said, kill this person, kill someone else because of money or because of rap or something stupid like that. That there were things in life that were more important than that. And uh, as far as money goes... You're gonna take it where you can find it. You yeah. know what I mean? And like, there, why should I not? Why am I gonna? Why am I gonna rob a fucking convenience store when I can rob a drug dealer? And, and, and Marlowe's people were very well trained. Chris was ruthless. Chris got arrested on just a fluke, basically, like it was something that would never happen if he didn't let his emotions get the better of him. Right. And he was very well disciplined, and he trained Michael very well. So Michael's the kind of guy who had a similar skill set that Omar could have had. You know, like right. you can see him being a very like comparable good Omar. He's Omar year one. Omar year one, exactly. And I think he's every bit, he could be every bit as good as Omar was too. Yeah. I like Michael a lot. And, uh, which is something that I don't think when I was watching season four of The Wire, I realized that they could potentially be setting some of these kids up to use as origin stories for the established characters. Right? They, they, do, they do it with some of the kids and they do it with some of the adults too. Right. Because Sidnor becomes the new McNulty. Yeah. Each person kind of be a lot of the characters can be like a new version of themselves. So who who we got now? Um, well, let's do Bubbles and Dookie. Bubbles, this season's Bubbles Redemption season. Right. He's and living after, in the base, the sister's basement. He's living in the sister's basement. Still not trusted, but he's getting better. He gets clean. He he in season four he has this uh, young understudy I'll call him mm-hmm. name. Uh, what's his name? Sharat, who he's kind of bringing along. Kind of he's another street kid. He, he's running his little cart with his bunny, and he brings Sherrod along, trying to show him how to basically be a bubbles, you know, like to live on the streets and function. But Sherrod is also very much a drug addict. He dips into Omar's stash. Omar had a hot shot in his pocket for a man that was bullying him. Kills Sherrod at the end of season four. That's enough for that's enough for bubbles. That's not the white kid, right? No, it's not the white kid. That, the, like, he, that, dies he dies in like season, season one, season two. He dies when they discover Hamsterdam. When they're clearing out Hamsterdam, they show his body in there. Oh, okay. So Sherat OD's on the hot shot, and Bubbles tries to kill himself. He's, like, distraught over it. That's his, that's his eye-opening moment. He gets clean after that. He's going to his AA meetings regularly. And, uh, he's hanging a, out with Steve Earle. Hanging out with, yeah, exa- exactly. <laughs> Steve Earle, that guy's in, he's in a lot of good shit. And um, he's also kind of, like, he's just looking for a way to become, like, a person again. There's a, another reporter that's lesser known at the same reporter where the liar is who kind of is looking for a story to tell about the homeless, but he finds Bubbles working at a homeless shelter feeding people. 
and kind of figure out Bubbles' story is as interesting as anything I've ever read, and kind of tells Bubbles' whole story from like a very hard standpoint. Doesn't let him off the hook. Bubbles gives him an interview, and he gets to the point now where he can start talking about like getting that kid killed. Because Bubbles will not talk about it. Like that almost killed him. Right. Because he does try to kill himself in that cell. He hangs himself, but he gets but they, they get him out of it. But um, Bubbles like hits. So they have a party for him because I think he's a year clean at this point now. And then his sister, he tells his sister, you should come, like, I'm like, you're clean, I want, like, family there. And after that, when she reads the article and goes to that, she realizes it's time to let him upstairs. Yeah, and he's, he's, he's not, you know, re- completely rebuilt, so, but he's, he's, he's doing better than we've ever seen him do before He's clean the and he's on the right path, and someone like him, as smart as Bubbles is, will be just fine. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, we have Dookie, who kind of slides further down into the role of a user... So it kind of starts with uh, at the end of season four, you realize that he's not—he's not trying to really better himself. You no, know, yeah. and he's also bored. He finds that one guy, the, the junk man in the neighborhood. Yeah. And he was like, he was bored because he had all this time before the kid, um, before Michael's brother gets out of school, and he was just bored. So he decides to help this guy to get a couple bucks every now and then. But this guy was part of a heroin den. Right. So he gets kind of into it a little bit then. He gets up, goes back to school, sees Presbo, hits him up for two hundred dollars, saying he's enrolling in the GED program. Presbo's like, "I'm going to check in a couple of weeks, and if you didn't enroll that, well, I guess this is the last time I'm going to see you." And he gives him the best junkie, convincing kid promise you've ever seen. Like, "I'm going to do it, Mr. Presbo. I'm going to do this. I'm going to make you proud." And he's not doing it. No. He goes back to his partner over there, his heroin buddy. And he's like, "Oh, he's like, he's like, the teacher loves your black ass. Like, two hundred dollars." <laughs> And you find out, yeah, he's a heroin addict now. And at one point, he does try to get a job, and this is something I alluded to last episode. Yes. He goes to Foot Locker to uh, get a job, and Pooh yeah. is uh, Brody's best friend. the store manager, which is one of those things, too, where it's like, I mean, I think it's it's so, it manipulates the audience so well, because you're going to be like, oh, it's that guy. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, I don't like feeling that manipulated. Pooh's a prominent character in the first season, maybe the second one, but you just see him pop up occasionally in Bodhi stories for the rest of it. Yeah, you don't really need to bring him back. It could have been anybody working at Foot Locker, and the fact that you chose to bring this character back from season one, I'm not saying, hey, look, it makes sense. Like, there's people that I drank with in my 20s, and I could walk into a bar on a Friday night, and suddenly they're the bartender. You know what I mean? Like, no one really leaves the south side of Chicago. No one really leaves West Baltimore. I get it. Like, these people just get recycled. Um, However, that's something that the the Wire has made kind of a shtick at this point, is stunt casting and rehashing these old characters. Uh, Season 5, actually, I think one of the first scenes in season five they bring back uh, they bring Nico Nico back from season two so in season two the whole point of they want the real reason Frank in season two does what he's doing is to get this pier opened up for the docks so you find out in season five didn't go that way yeah so they're building condos there and they, they kind of, and then Nico shows up because they're one of them because yeah. he's giving a speech about it and he's like he's like congratulations you ruined the port of Baltimore and it's Nico I'm like when the fuck did they get Pablo Schreiber in for like 30 seconds when I first saw it? I was like, right. oh, he's going to be in this season? <laughs> and that's it. That's the end of them. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe he was hanging out Because at the end of season two, we're led to believe that Nico goes into witness protection. Right, right. And then um, all of a sudden he's in public yelling at the mayor? Once again, something that, I mean, Presbo in season four, it's something that The Wire does that... For the I, record, I'm always proud to see Pablo Schreiber show up. I mean, it's not the end of the world. It doesn't tarnish a, a great series, but it's kind of one of those lesser... I'm not a huge fan of it. 
if they got into it for like 10 more seconds to let us know what he'd been up to, I'd say maybe it's worth it just to let us know he's doing okay. Right. But it's literally, he yells that one line and it gets dragged off and that's it. I just, as an audience member, I realize that it's geared towards me and it feels manipulative. Uh, that's it. Um, what else from season five do we want to talk about? So, we can talk about when everything gets blown up. Uh, oh, okay, Daniels now. But Carcetti, he's, he's over Burrell's shit at this point. Burrell has juked the stats for the last time as far as Carcetti's concerned. So he wants to bring up a new guy. He knows it has to be a black guy considering the population. So there's Daniels. He's got a relatively clean record as far as we can tell. He's a good guy, and he's someone that the ministers who have a lot of influence will get behind. So the whole point of this is grooming Daniels to become the next police commissioner. Burrell is, goes quietly. He's giving a cushy job somewhere else to go quietly. And Rawls is made the acting commissioner until Daniels is ready to take over. So when they get to the point where Rawls is also given that same vacation that Burrell is given, Daniels is brought up. At the exact time, McNulty's shit explodes and everyone finds out what he'd been up to. So with Daniels, he's, he, he's commissioner for, I swear, it feels like 30 seconds. And this ends up fucking him for good. He goes back to being a lawyer. Him, but, but, but Daniels finds out about this. He wants to go to the press right away with this say, we didn't know about this fake serial killer. Right. We didn't want any of this shit. But Carcetti's like, we can't do this yet. Like, we cannot let this go out yet. This is going to ruin everything. It's going to make us look like idiots. So he has to wait a little bit longer. And Daniels has said, you promise you there'll be no more of this games playing bullshit. You know, lying like, like you've been lied to his whole time. So he kind of quits the whole thing and becomes a lawyer like he kind of always wanted to. Sure. And, yeah, so obviously uh, McNulty's ruse gets unmasked and uh, he gets kicked off the fucking force. Yes, he does. And um, what because the- Kima, they tell the, the, Kima, they're sick of seeing Kima waste her time on this fake serial killer. They can't do it to anyone. They respect her too much, so they let her in on the bullshit that's going on, and she's not having it. Well, that that's where she eventually proves herself to be one better than McNulty. Yeah. And uh, there's no hard feelings there for what no, she they, does. They make up because when they're having McNulty's uh, wake. his wake at the end, when you see him laying on the thing. She comes out. She's like, I wasn't sure if I was coming. I, I want to try. You guys felt about it. They give her a hug and they said, "You did what you felt was right." Yeah. And they're like, can you live with it? She's like, literally, like, we're good. Everything's fine. Ultimately, they're police, and they understand. And they it. knew she did the right thing. And in their hearts, they knew she did the right thing. Right. And then McNulty just finally went too far off the reservation, and uh, Fremont's forced into retirement. Yeah. And uh, McNulty's let go. Yeah, and that's kind of you know the I feel like the last the ending montage is him post wake. And uh, saying goodbye to the city of Baltimore. I mean, I don't think he necessarily leaves, but definitely the relationship that he had with the city has now changed because he's no longer a police. Uh, where do you think he ends up? I think he, you know what? I think he, um, I think he, he still would beat at this point. He almost loses her throughout the season from his drinking and cheating, and he becomes old McNulty again in the worst way. Yeah. He almost loses her, but at the end of it, I think he does end up keeping her, raising the kids. I think he tries it again. But McNulty can only be straight for so long without a distraction. So, unless he got like a private detective job or something to keep him policing, I don't know how I don't know how to say his story ended well. Well, you could also argue that, I mean, we don't see too much of McNulty. We don't know too much of McNulty before he was a police. Maybe him leaving the force, as far as mental health goes, is the best thing for him. Yeah, we Maybe. don't know if he was a big drunk before. Maybe the force is what made him that way. Yeah, well, definitely, like we talked about last episode, it's, you know, there's a certain segment that, you know, being a police officer in real life, there's demons that you got to wrestle with when you when you punch out every day. You know, maybe he leaves the force behind. He did everything he could do as a cop. 
They threw him out. He's not coming back. There, there's no maybe. There's no, you know, he's, he's one of those guys that fights to the very end. Well, this is the very end. He did it. So now he can go do something else with his life, and maybe it's something that doesn't haunt him as much or make him want to get fucked up or get so frustrated. Maybe he can find happiness somewhere else or find peace. Because he wasn't necessarily doing what he loved in season four as a B-cop, but he was doing something he could wrap his head around. Or he in wasn't season chasing two. Shit. I mean, he always had a problem with the job. That's that's the through line for every season. Like, that's why season one, he was pissed off about the fucking case that he worked getting fucking tanked. And season two, he's a, he's a boat cop. He hated that. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's not like, you understand why he's a cop and that he is a cop. He's just, when we meet him, he's a cop. But he's very disenfranchised with the way that the system works. The system's not going to fucking change. No, no, <laughs> you know no, what I mean? He knew that. So either that's why he does the homeless thing, because he realizes they're not going to change. He's like, what do you say? These motherfuckers can't do the right thing. It's not in them. So he's trying to fight the system, and he gets caught, and he gets thrown out. So he's off the team. Maybe, you know, he does a shift, and he finds happiness there. Who knows? It's very possible. You know? So... What else we got in season five? Season five, who else do we got to wrap up? So you, we get um, some Michael's story. He becomes a new Omar. There's Michael no, McDonald, I think we went through most of it. Yeah, I think we got through a lot of it. We got um, Carcetti is thinking about a, go- a governor run. Sure. And he ends up winning. He becomes governor at the end. He actually does become governor at the end. And um, Which is the worst thing in the world. He wasn't necessarily like a terrible every, character. Everybody kind of got what they wanted out of McNulty's bullshit. Everyone was able to kind of ride his bullshit to where they wanted to be. So Scott getting caught, the way Scott got caught was McNulty finally came clean. He brings him, it was a good scene, he brings the cop into the into the office, or the, 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 the uh, reporter's waiting in the office, waiting, he wants to give his statement, he volunteers to give his statement. McNulty goes in there, he's already caught, the jig's out. He's like, it's me, he's like, that. he's talking on the phone, I'm the serial killer, it was me. He's like, now I know why I did this. He's like, but I can't for the life of me figure out why the fuck you did this. And the guy's just dumbfounded, like, what is a ghost the entire time? It's like, like, caught. Right. That, that reporter ends up get, getting, like, promoted or something like that, too. I think his story does actually end up pretty well for him because the, the editor does a shit cover for him. And uh, the editor does the same old stuff that he's always been doing. The paper goes on. Well, that's interesting because both the reporter and McNulty had the symbiotic relationship with this bullshit serial killer story. And, you know, maybe this is Simon kind of commenting on which is the most honorable profession. Like, at least when McNulty was cut, someone ratted him out and threw him out on his own, and that was it. Yeah. Whereas the, whereas the, the press just promoted him and, you know... <laughs> they just did it, exactly. Shit floats to the fucking top. It was just the theme of, like, a lot of, like, a theme in The Wire is the wrong people getting promoted all the time. Right. One of the lines I think they say is, maybe they'll promote the wrong person because they're talking about the, how, a guy they have a wire on in an earlier season. Maybe they'll promote him. We promote the wrong person all the damn time. <laughs> so they went on to that, and the newspaper went on promoting like, the wrong people. Right. And McNulty's on, on his own. And Freeman is with the happily with the with the stripper he met in season one. That's right. <laughs> making his little toy furniture. Yeah, he's got a more yeah, they, lucrative business making the furniture. They said he makes more than you do of these little toy furniture. Yeah. <laughs> bunk. We have not talked about Bunk in this season. Bunk is just going on being the same old Bunk. He does keep the secret for as long as he can, but he's the one that kind of guilts them into letting Kim off the hook because they can't let someone they care about chase bullshit forever. I feel like they kind of ran out of things to do with Bunk because they probably didn't want to tarnish his character because he's, he's more like uh, chaotic, I mean, chaotic, neutral, chaotic good. If I we were to use d I look at him as McNulty's moral compass. That's how I look at it. Yeah. The guy that real McNulty was going too far. 
But there was a couple of seasons where McNulty wasn't going very far. Right. So, but you think, like, Five kind of fucked up their friendship for a long time. But then by the end of it, like, he gets fired and they, they're, they're friendly at the end of it. Well, yeah. You know, because McNulty was bringing a, uh, bringing a lot of heat down on what it means to be a police. And it's something Bunk takes very seriously. Right. And with him being fired and, and dismissed, it probably was a breath of, uh, it was a release, a relief for a lot of people. You don't have to babysit him anymore. Yeah, exactly. So. Yeah, Rawls gets his dream job and uh, this for state police doing whatever the hell he wants. And what is it? Um, the, the commissioner, Daniels, becomes a lawyer. He finally gets what he wanted to do from the beginning. Sidner becomes the new McNulty. Greg's kind of becomes the new uh, Fremont a little bit. I think with her, because she stays on it. Or, it was her that became the Fremont. Presbo is not in this season much. He's in like one scene where sure. where Dookie rips him off. Dookie, tragic ending, just a heroin addict. A new Becomes the next Bubbles. Bubbles day one, exactly, which is probably the worst part of his life. Yeah. Michael is doing fine, and Omar is dead. Marlo, Chris goes to jail for beating Michael's dad to death. Did they find his DNA on him because he did it with his bare hands? And um, Marlo's going to start over with his empire. Prop Joe, we have not talked about Prop Joe. Okay, so this is why I like Slim Charles. Real quick. Real quick point. All right, so Slim Charles um, is a big fan of Prop Joe. They become friendly after the Barksdale thing goes away. Um, so the way that Marlo is able to get to Prop Joe is through Cheese, Method Man, who's an amazing, yeah. amazing actor, by the way. Method Man. You ever see How High? Yeah. That's a fucking great movie. <laughs> Method Man um, is kind of a piece of shit. Turns in his, and he's also Prop Joe's nephew. Gives up the location to Marlo because Marlo promises him a better spot, and he's more in line with how Marlo thinks. So they kill Prop Joe finally, and at the end, when Marlo steps away from the crown, they kind of figure out how, well, who's going to deal with the uh, the stash, like who's going to run the shipments, and they decide they're all going to buy the connect from Marlo. He offers them like twenty million dollars. He has to buy the connect. They get the money together. She's like, "Fuck it, I'll put up the rest. Like we're going to make this back and then some." And as he's doing it, talking shit, Slim Charles shoots him in the fucking head, point blank. He's like that was for Joe. And the other capitals that were sitting around were like. This sentiment of the motherfucker just cost us money. He's <laughs> one of the guys you always saw at the co-op and shit like that. But just, I just like Slim Charles' loyalty. He was, he was always a loyal guy throughout the whole thing. That's why I liked him. Yeah. So that's season five of The Wire. Let's look at it back in Toto, the whole series. Like, why did we decide to talk about the entire series of The Wire? I mean, I know it's a highly ranked show in popularity. Like, I list you'll ever see. It was one of the best shows I've ever seen. I actually saw it on a random, like I said before, on a random HBO free preview day. I watched like a beginning of like a season three or something like that. Right. So that far in, not knowing any of the backstory, caught me. I heard it was a good show. Yeah. It caught me. I just thought, I've never seen something that told the story of cops, because I was a big SVU guy, you know, like a lot of cop dramas I liked. Never seen a show that told both stories equally, though. The streets versus, you know, the cops. And they just... Nothing was told with any bias, you know? Yeah. Not really. Not until the newspaper thing. They were looked at as bigger heroes than they were. But nothing was really, like... It was just even. There was no bias or... You weren't told to think a certain way. There had been TV shows... So if we look at this, like, in the context of a TV show, there had been TV shows in the past that told bigger stories, that used the format of TV. Because if you looked at the... I'm sure even today, if you were to add up all the TV shows in history, from the invention of TV to today... I'm still willing to bet most TV shows that aired were episodic, just this happens 
one week and then next week this happens and final episode. And you could kind of play them out of order. It wouldn't really matter. Maybe from season to season there's some kind of changes or something like that. But for the most part, there's no greater mythology being developed. It's just like you said, final episodes. And The Wire wasn't necessarily the first TV show that tried to use the format structure of a TV show to tell a bigger coherent story. I mean, I think just based on what I love before this, Buffy. Buffy might have even been off the air before The Wire even started. But, but it told a story on a WB network, which yeah, is also playing the main show. Vampires and shit, and it was all right. Some of it sucked, some of it was good. And But for the most part, I think the, the highest heights of, of Buffy never even came close to The Wire. But The Wire was the first time that we saw the television format used. The prestige TV thing. Yes. Where instead of like, because like you said, TV shows used to be encapsulated in like an hour or a half hour, depending on how long it was. Right. But the shows nowadays, like The Wire, it's basically like a hundred and something hour movie. Sure, yeah. That's how you can look at it. It's got the breaks for you and everything. But even if you were someone that could just watch a hundred hour TV straight through, it would feel just like watching a movie. Yeah. And they were, well, when you, I think when you watch that, when you spend that much time of your life watching something, a narrative that's that big, like, in what other format does that big of a narrative even exist? Like, okay. Movies are about two hours. Books maybe, depending on their length, they take you a week or two to read. Uh, TV shows, soap operas are what they are, but soap operas are kind of looked down on because some of them are kind of fucking goofy. No. If you spend 100 hours of your life, or I don't even know how many episodes are on it's, it's 12 or 13 episodes a season. They vary a little bit. Well, the, I know the, the last, last episode's only 10. The last season's 10. So let's see, we're talking about like, 48, we're talking about, about about 58 hours. Well, no, we'll do if it's tw- let's say 12 episodes as a as a uh, average for five seasons. That is, uh, yeah, it's 60. So if you spend 60 hours of your life invested in anybody's story, I mean that's a that's a, that's more than it's ever taken you to fucking read a book. Oh it's yeah, any movie, no movies that length, no movie series is that length. Even Harry Potter, you know, this is more this this draws the viewer um, or spectator in. More than anything else that we really have available to us, or, and to do it with this degree of skill. Credit to The Wire. A lot of shows I love have boring moments. The Wire is never boring. It's a lot of things, but I'm never bored by it. Right. It's also very intellectual too. Yes. You know what I mean? Because it makes you, it makes you really think about um, the plight of the people in these communities. You know what I mean? It's, I mean, I learned a lot about a lot about things that I never would have been able to understand from that show. Sure. If we're to take it as the truth, which I think we can take a lot of it as the truth. Yeah. So, uh, you know, going through the wire uh, and watching it in total is is kind of like I don't want to say it's like a life event, but it's so uh, you know. Name one other thing you spent 60 hours of your life working on outside of a fucking associate's degree. Between The Wire and Sopranos, <laughs> that's what, I'm a big, big TV guy now. Yeah. Between The Wire and Sopranos, those are the ones that got me to love TV. Well, I think 10 years from now, 20 years from now, we'll look back, and if we're not, you know, living in caves, you know, making fires with rocks, we'll definitely look at those two series as a turning point for mass media and communication, you know, and the way that we do tell our stories. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, that's something that's kind of been universal with mankind from day one, and it's evolved over over the years, but, you know, where's the bomb, yo? Where's the bomb? All right, cool. All right, well, that was fun. Thank you for listening if you did, and we, um, we'll see whatever we do next. Yeah, stay tuned. We got a Christmas or a holiday special. Holiday special. <laughs>